The Open Pantry Podcast is a hospitality podcast where I interview people within the hospitality industry about both their lives in and outside the industry. Hey, I'm Sean DeVries and I'm your host. I hope you really enjoy these episodes. My podcast aims to show that the thing that links all people in hospitality is a want to be creative, support each other and always do better. I really hope you enjoy the episode, so make sure you subscribe and always leave me some feedback. Enjoy. Welcome to the Open Pantry Podcast for yet another episode. Whether you're viewing or listening, I appreciate your time. So thanks so much for tuning in. Fantastic as COVID sort of rolls out and we take this at the end of May, uh, we're about ready to get started into a lot of venues in Australia reopening on restrictions. Um, So over the last couple of weeks, I've tried to reach out to different people talking about how we can reopen and the benefits and some of those changes moving forward. So really excited to have uh, our next guest on. Mark Calabro is the co-founder of Hungry Hungry, which is all about digitization and menus and delivery and everything else. So Mark, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Great having you, having me on board. Thanks, Sean. Um, so let's let's talk about what Hungry Hungry is and, and how it really started um, back in time, Mark, because I know you've been in this space for a long period of time and built up a lot of credibility from when we talked about it last week uh, before taping today. So do you always want to run through what Hungry Hungry is and how you got it started? Yeah, it was really born out of um, my, my co-founder and I had spent many years in, in technology and, and restaurants, uh, which goes back to about 2002, roughly. Mm-hmm. And um, over that time, we've just seen um, how technology has helped uh, shape the hospitality industry, not just in Australia, but also uh, abroad. Mm-hmm. And what we were seeing is, um, although there's been some great um, products that have come out to really uh, facilitate running these businesses better and more profitable. Mm-hmm. We've seen some destructive forces in more recent years with mm-hmm. some of the big navigators um, and delivery platforms. So we wanted to create something that was uh, first and foremost the actual business owner. So how did how did it come about? Like when where did you guys actually start out in your sort of tech career and, and stuff like that with hospitality? Because I know that's been going a good amount of time, right? Yeah, yeah. So we started off, we we started a point of sale system, Automate, which was started out of a garage in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we grew that business very organically, you know, raising capital, VCs, that wasn't really a thing done um, mm-hmm. back fresh out of university mm-hmm. and in hospitality to, to get us through. Um, so we, we, we just grew that, that business over, over the years and, um, you know, we got it open to the UAE, New Zealand, and um, it was very sort of hardware-reliant, uh, so mm-hmm. kind of styling a business. This is also, you know, very much pre, pre-cloud as well. Yes, of course. Uh, so, so, yeah, look, you know, it was a business that, you know, we had so many learnings from. We made so many good friends of our family that involved in the industry. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a really fun as well as challenging business to grow, but it, it gave us a really deep understanding of the, the backside of this industry. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, glitz and glam and um, yes, absolutely. Uh, stereotypes about, you know, the industry itself. And, and a lot of people jump into it as, as more of a probably a lifestyle <laughs> uh, choice it's it's um there's a lot under the covers and um when you've been in it for for a few years you, you work that out pretty quickly 
Yeah, totally agree. What What were some of the most um, surprising things when you came in and you started installing, you know, that point of sale software um, back a long time ago now? Like, like what were the, some of the most surprising things from those owners? Was it the fact that they maybe didn't know as much as you thought they did or that, you know, you're obviously providing, you know, um, a great product at, at that point in time that was really, you know, ahead of its time? Yeah, there were many, but but one of them um, especially was a lot of a lot of people that that get into this industry don't do it um, to run P and Ls and run you know forecasts and look at their supply chain and look at you know you know how can you know a percentage saving here impact something else in the business. A lot of people that come into this industry come in because of their love of. Uh, pastries or their love mm. of Spanish food because they've travelled around Spain or they might have this thing this affinity with wine that might go back to a grandparent. So uh, what we what we learned pretty quickly was that the um, they don't they don't step into this business a lot of them with a, a business model and a strategy and mm. a five year plan. It's very much um, the excitement of it all is kind of the overwhelming part of what their first 6, 12, 18, 24 months looks like. Yeah. And then reality hits and I know a lot of businesses, um, it's expensive to set up a hospitality business. Yeah, big time. And, um, and then also, you know, there's there's a few rules of thumb there about having, you know, cash flow for the first 12 months and, you know, what happens if this happens? What happens if I go into a shopping centre and there's now another 10 people selling coffee? Mm. I don't have as many levers perhaps as I thought before I went into this and perhaps there's just maybe some of that business and financial acumen that's not that's not, um, not often there that you'll perhaps see in some other industries. Do you, do you think that's just because they're focusing on this sort of this kind of dream aspect and that's all they've wanted to do? So therefore they're just like, okay, well, I can get money from five people I know because they really love me and enjoy the product that I produce or I worked for this really good, you know, venue beforehand and and that's going to give me the street credibility. Do you think it's largely that? Because it's I've been in this industry for a long time and it's it's amazing to see people blow hundreds of thousands of dollars without proper planning in place. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I've 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 kind of had shared this story many times and through my experiences that you always see you know, guys and girls in their twenties, and mm. and however they 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 got some um, you know some money on their hands, they open up a venue, and it, it's it's a lifestyle. Yes, you know, it, it's, it's wonderful working fifteen hours a day, six seven days a week, earning five hundred dollars a week because it's just a great lifestyle. Yeah, it's awesome. Then, <laughs> yeah, awesome. Um, then they go and get married, and I'll you know I'll have children, and they go you know holy shit, you know fifteen hours a day in this money, it doesn't yeah. doesn't quite work out for me anymore. And then they flip to having to make this about you know kind of finances, budgets, and money first, and then mm. like, that's that's just just a, it's a different ball game it becomes. Yeah, totally agree. So let let's talk about the last couple of months, you know, with COVID and how that's maybe pivoted and structured hungry, hungry. Like what have you guys done in the last couple of months after seeing what the industry was um, about to about to have to handle? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that everyone you speak to in this industry is I think still trying to um, pick up the pieces of what happened there from, you know, mid-March up until, 
in recent weeks now on the, on the doorstep. Here in Victoria, we're opening up next week. Mm. Some other states have already started to open up. So I think the first few weeks was just pure devastation. Um, we saw, you know, a lot of people decided to just pack up, just kind of, you know, turn off the lights, mm. uh, just work, work things out. We did have a few restaurants that came to us and go, we want to get online. Um, we think that we can make a go of this. Yeah, right. And those conversations went from a seed to we're now live selling online within 24 hours. Wow. And um, I just remember that there were some very raw emotions uh, around that on 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 the, the venue side with their team members as well yeah. as with our team members as well. It was, um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think I'll ever forget those um, those weeks, um, in particular their late March. Yeah. Um, quite, quite profound. Yeah, when things were closing and borders were closing and... A lot of a lot of the teams inside these venues who you know are internationals who are deciding whether to go home on an extremely expensive ticket or whether to stay and hold it out. It was a very uh, uncertain time for everyone to know what to do. Yeah, that uncertainty, I think, was. Um, I mean, it, it, it's you know, no one had a playbook on this, and it was a it was a global thing. So, I think you know we. we we all turn to our leaders, I think, here in Australia. I mean, you know, how many times has it been said that, you know, you'd rather be in Australia than any other country, I think, through Most all definitely. of this. Mm. But that doesn't sort of change the fact that this is arguably, you know, the most hardest hit industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also an industry that so many of us really cherish and we also rely on. And I think that there's probably, there's, I mean, there's many, I think, Good things that will come out of this is that um, I think there's a deeper appreciation for the industry needing to evolve and evolve yes. quickly. Mm-hmm. And you know, this has been a discussion brewing. I feel for the best part of three or four years that the pricing of the plate, the price for a coffee, isn't reflective of what's being charged. Yes. And, you know, this is now, I see, an opportunity for, you know, a whole new industry to be reborn, albeit that there are just still so many challenges that lay ahead and so much uncertainty still in front of us. Yeah. I mean, you would have a lot of scope to look at, you know, menu pricing across so many different brands and, and you know, basket values and that kind of stuff. Like, where do you think that's going to leave the industry further on? Because I think everyone knows that prices in venues need to go up for simple things like coffee, as you just said, to to normal brunch meals and that kind of stuff. The amount of labour that's going into it, the amount of prop, uh, the amount of lease costs that go into it, um, the price for food wholesale um, to go into it as well. Like, do you think that's going to end up in people experiencing hospitality brands less? and spending more in those experiences or do you think it's just going to be you know you know a lot of a, a lot of brands going to the wall because they just you know they can only compete on price and their brand isn't there that that's a really good question and um, there, I think there are, there are a few ways to kind of look at that I think first of all businesses those that have taken the opportunity in this time to um, educate themselves, rethink about um, who they are and what they're going to be offering mm-hmm. um, on the other side of this. I think that they will, um, 
I think they will prosper. I think there will be a lot of businesses that come out stronger mm-hmm. in um, 12, 24 months from now. Mm-hmm. And I've seen a whole bunch of models about what kind of that that back upwards to mm. where we were COVID look like. Um, yes. I think that's, that's another unknown variable and it's very interesting. Mm. But I, I also think that this has been an opportunity for, and where I've seen it really work well is that menus don't need to be as big as, and extensive as they have been in the past. Very good call. Mm-hmm. And I remember back in, you know, the uh, mid-2000s when you would have, you know, a really long menu list. You'd have a wine list of 800 wines at the Absolutely. Yeah. After, you know, that was that was great in an industry that was making 15 20% profit margin. Yes. Now in an industry that's kind of struggling to make profit, sitting on an average of 4%, mm. people need to be very, very, very clever with their menu design. And yes. I've seen during COVID um, some operators who have just gone down to a more minimum set. I think people don't really want that that choice. We're all so busy anyway. Yes. And if I know that there is a little French restaurant in South Yarra doing a few things, but they're amazing. Yes. I'm, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna order it not because I've got a choice of ten things, but there's a couple of things in there. I'm gonna choose one that I that I really like. Yeah. And what that gives the venue opportunity to do is to really hone in on what are their high GP items that they want to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that ties in with kind of part of the reason why we also set up Hungry and Hungry, and that is that we know when we're using technology to to upsell, and we've seen an uplift of typically around the, the 22 to 25%. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. So we know that there's, not, there's only so many levers there around um, costs. A lot of them are, are fixed. Yep. We accept that we have one of the highest wage costs in the world here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so where are the levers? So if we can try and get a menu that's designed right and we can get an uplift on the average spend, that translates to a more profitable, more healthy bottom line for the business. Yeah, I totally agree. That's a really amazing fact that you just put the 22 to 25% uptick in basket value like why do you think that's happened in a in a uh, nation and a world that now has less supposedly has less cash <laughs> you know and and people uh, people who are stood down who are on you know um, uh, government government assistance and that kind of stuff like does that just blow your mind a bit it doesn't it doesn't I think that the value of food, and you know, and and wine and beer and, and mm-hmm. everything is ever increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, have a look at you know airlines, uh, events, stadiums. Food is front of center of that. There's a there's a very high importance that we place on food. I've always likened food to be a vehicle to take you back to a moment in time in your childhood, yes. or take you back to a holiday that you had. You know, last year, it's freezing cold here in Melbourne. I can think <laughs> that I was in France two years ago in the sun eating just a beautiful baguette. Yes. So food just has these, you know, wonderful powers and, and brings back memories as well as, you know, as the social value uh, that it has, which is why I've always said that, you know, retail's had a lot of struggles. Um, uh, food will will go online, but there's always going to be, a part of food where we're still going to want to go out into a venue 
and be waited on and be a little bit spoiled and, and yeah. share friends and family. Uh, my gut feel is that during this experience as we go from 20 people allowed to be in a venue to 50 to 100, uh, as long as the space, you know, is able to do that, um, is that people will really cherish the moments they actually have in hospitality venues, which is all about connection, whether that be connection on a celebratory thing, whether that be connection with a new business, you know, a new business associate, um, you know, all those kind of things, a first date, all those kind of things are really, really important in the way of hospitality creative moments. But I'd be interested to know your feedback in how you think brands are now going to use the new omni-channel of delivery to create that same moment into into customers' homes because you've just seen you've just seen a lot of venues go from nah, I never want to do online. That's not part of what we do to go, holy shit, we need to do we need to do something to keep this business alive and our staff employed. So now we're going to move online with you guys. Um, how do you think those venues are going to create, you know, moments um, and brand inside someone else's someone else's home rather than their own venue? That, that, that's a really good question. Um, so, I mean, these are just the conversations that we've been having yeah. um, over mm. these two months. And one of the things that a lot of restaurants have said is they've always just thought it's just, it's too hard for ourselves to get the food out of our restaurant. Mm-hmm. Or even if they think, no, we can do it, then they've got a chef that will be like, no, I'm not putting my food in a takeaway container. Yes. Um, if not, a whole bunch of other reasons. And I remember having a conversation with the guys at, at Francois. Yes. Uh, where you know takeaway, like you know, we don't do we don't do takeaway here. It's just not you know, do steak, we do fits, we do snails. You come here, you hit. So the, the interesting thing is that people of um, a lot of operators just had to just work it out and thought, yeah. you know what, I actually want to get our food out, and you know what, we're up for the challenge now because we don't have anyone in our restaurant. Mm-hmm. Now, there's going to be, I know there'll be there's a, a, a percentage of those people that as soon as they're able to um, uh, open up again, they'll, they'll perhaps turn off the takeaway. Yep. Yep. But I'm seeing, and from what we know at the moment, the vast majority of those operators have thought, well, we've now got another revenue stream here. And if we can make this work, well, we've been able to make it work, but if this does now, this can exist without compromising our, our lunch or dinner service, mm-hmm. why would we not look at an extra five, ten thousand dollars a week in revenue, which actually has a lower cost base? Mm-hmm. So if we can get the food for pickup, we deliver it ourselves or it's catering and it might be on the shoulders of lunch. Yes. We then get the utilization out of our fixed costs in mm-hmm. the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for the consumers, I mean I've written so many reviews. I know friends that are just having like, wow, like I can actually have the Stasio. How good is it I can order the Stasio and have it um, in my own home lounge? Now, mm. I don't get the waiter, <laughs> the, the Italians with that, but I can actually have the Stasio on a plate on the couch with a blanket with Netflix and that's just another reminder I'm in Melbourne and it's freezing cold and it's coming into winter. <laughs> You're like, I will not going into winter. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be really interesting um, how, as we see live sport come back, if a lot of brands are going to move certain um, certain purely 
uh, food around segments of live sport in order to try and create moments around watching football, around watching, you know, different other sports that are going to open up in the next couple of months. Um, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a massive opportunity that's going to, that's going to happen. Um, and um, I'm excited to see where delivery goes. Hmm. The other interesting thing I was going to say is also what happens with people working from home more. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation around, you know, restaurants in the city as opposed to those kind of suburban belts. Yes. With working from home. So I think that's also a very interesting one that we just don't know yet. Are you seeing any data on that? Because there's there's a couple of points that I'll talk about there. I love that you talked about that on a couple of, just before Easter, I talked with, Andrew Danson, who's a great property leasing agent in Melbourne, uh, does a lot of work around Australia. And my my thought process to him was the the suburban venues will recover first, and then it will slowly trickle in and into the inner city because we're going to have people who now are going to know that they can work from home one day a week, all days all days of the week. You know, so CBD venues are really going to, I think, be the last to come back, and. And I also talked with Nick Stone, who I know you know from the CEO of Bluestone Lane, um, a couple of weeks ago, and I, I asked him about at-home coffee, and if he thought that was going to um, he thought that was going to increase. Um, and his thought was, you know, probably not. It would have a spike at the moment, but probably not. Um, what, what's your thoughts on that? Do you think do you think that you know things like at-home coffee and 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 that kind of stuff and cafes delivering to people is going to increase over this period of time? I think the leading indicator of that will be how for how much longer does efficiency of a workforce working at home continue to increase or potentially then decrease. Sure. I know from a lot of conversations that I've had with with people um, in corporate sector um, yeah. and, and and even even within our teams as well, um, people are more productive working from home. And I think that's been one of the biggest realisations through this. So that, that poses some real challenges for leasing agents and people yep. that have high rises in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that, if that does continue, and, again, I mean, we've been doing this for two months now and I'm, and I'm also very aware there's a lot of people that have been working at home in burnout mode given there's nowhere else to really go at the moment. Yes. Although that's two weeks now, thank God. Yes. Um, so... I think that if we see this trend towards if, if it were to stay or to continue growing as it has, mm. then a at-home, at-home service, be it for, for coffee, for burgers, for dumplings or whatever it might be, I, I, I can see that on the rise. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. As when you start to open up again, Mark, do you believe that um, because the venue is going to be such a uh, uh, more under you know wage constraints and all that kind of stuff, especially as we get towards the end of the year when JobKeeper will likely come off, and 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 owners will have to pay their staff what normal award is. Um, do you think like things like digitization of menus and table ordering, um, rather than going up to a counter or rather having someone um, you know face to face order with you? Do you think that's going to be something that all venues are going to have to move to in some way, shape or form? I think all venues, uh, that's part of this, I suppose, journey they're on at the moment is to understand where all their costs are. Mm. In, I know a lot of operators who have for years really struggled with controlling costs. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I, and, and from the conversations um, that I've been having, they, they are very much looking at that. Yep. I think the other factor as well is just the, um, you know, a, a lot of overseas workers um, have gone home, yep. which is really, I think, A massive scary, problem. Mm-hmm. Huge problem. And I'm not sure if that's actually, if, if the public or the broad audience actually understands what the wider ramifications of that actually mean. Yes. Um, I, I, I would love to see, you know, more Australians in venues wanting to upskill themselves and see this as a professional career. Mm-hmm. And there's some great people out there that really um, foster and promote a much better educated, um, innovative industry. Um, so I think that's kind of up to, to our governments to make a, a state, you know, stand to say, you know, this is a, a professional organisation. I've always mm-hmm. said that, you know, if you're okay. a lifelong banker, as you see in Europe, You've got a man or a lady in their fifties or sixties who have mastered the art of working, you know, in a, on a restaurant floor. Absolutely, they are entitled to be earning just as much as anyone else in any other profession. Yes, good call. However, you know, and this is a conversation we could talk about for hours. <laughs> um, there needs to be some sort of, you know, um, I think level playing field where the business owner also has an opportunity to 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 make a profit industry that is otherwise. And again. One easy solution to that might be just raise all the prices by 20, 30%. Yeah. And you know, problem solved. Yes. But that then requires everyone else doing that also. And that, and mm. therein lies the challenge. Yeah. And I, and I think largely that's the reason why coffee has probably stayed at the point it has for such a long time. And it's probably only been the last 12 to 18 months that artisan coffee brands have moved up their prices and, and slowly the rest of the market has as well, which has been an important thing to see from every part. So that's a good thing. Um, yeah. I suppose my last question to you, Mark, like you're, you guys are so across the industry and, and, and really what's happening. So that's why I wanted to get you on today. What do you think the first type of brands are that are going to recover? Like what segment of the market? Do you think it's going to be fast food? Do you think it's going to be that, that middle tier kind of QSR, do you think it's going to be fine dining that's going to, you know, somehow be innovative and, and come back? Like what part of the market do you think is going to come back the quickest from your gut feel? I was reading an interesting publication by McKenzie out of the US last night and, um, I mean, uh, pizza in the US hardly, I think it's actually grown. Yes. Um, got all the other verticals within hospitality and fine dining was, was the last one to come on, on online. Mm-hmm. I think the other way to look at that is which businesses have taken this opportunity to reshape their business, mm-hmm. reshape their systems, mm-hmm. uh, set up a proper CRM system, make sure they've got all of their all of their technology pieces in place. Yes. So that they can then go into this next phase mm-hmm. uh, where they're able to have simple things like, you know, a database, mm-hmm. you know, how many other industries do you, you know, I know people that have sold a coffee to the office workers upstairs. Um, the same person's been there, you know, two years every day. They still don't know their name. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of strange. You operate this, this industry, which is so innovative in many aspects, yet they fill a, a, a dining room for lunch and they don't have, 
the details of anyone that's coming to the venue other than yeah. they've come through a reservation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and, and that's, that's, that's something that, you know, we've always been very big on and that is about that, that information sharing and being able to, you know, engage in your customer when they're not in the venue. So, so I think to, to answer your question um, in kind of in, in the summary is that, that the industry now needs to, to innovate and needs to be in a world that is now online, mm-hmm. needs to understand more than ever mm-hmm. uh, who they exist for. You know, there's no point in trying to have a menu that try and pleases everyone yeah. in, in in a country, cities where there's just so many food uh, options as well. Yes, so, absolutely. Thank you for your thoughts on that and thank you for joining me on today's podcast. Um, what's the best way that people can find out more about what Hungry Hungry does, Mark? We, we're very active on Instagram, so mm-hmm. you can always... Uh, Hashtag Hungry Hungry. Mm-hmm. We also have a brand new website due for release in about four weeks, but you can go to hungryhungry.com. Mm-hmm. It's been a bit too busy to get back mm-hmm. to the website for the last couple of months. Sure. Uh, you can ask my marketing manager because I'm on her back every day about that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, social media, uh, our website, and yeah. Cool. And I cool. ask around, you know, we've been, we've been very lucky to work, we've been very fortunate and privileged to work with so many great restaurants in um, Melbourne, Sydney, a few in Brisbane, in other parts of Australia mm-hmm. during COVID. Um, so, yeah, ask around. Cool. Thanks, Mark Collabro. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Open Pantry Podcast. I hope you really enjoyed it. As always, please look in the bio of this podcast and always Send me a voicemail message. I'd love to know what you think of the podcast or just follow us on Instagram under Open Pantry Consulting. Until next time, stay well. For um, Indigenous farmers and non-Indigenous farmers to source native produce and then continuing to work with food service to identify new products and new innovative ways to offer Australian natives so that they can continue to they can continue to innovate within their own kitchens and bring exciting products to the market. Amazing. I can't, uh, I can't wait to see the evolution of this brand. I think you're doing um, everything for the right reasons and in a great way. So well done. Uh, Hayley, thanks so much for joining me on today's podcast. I really appreciate your time. What is the best way that people can find out about what your brand is and just understand a bit more about it? If you come to our website, which is www.ostsuperfoods.com.au, or follow us on social media with our handle, Os Superfoods. Awesome. So I'll link that up in the bio of this podcast as well so you can find it super easily. Hayley Bleeden, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Open Pantry Podcast. I hope you really enjoyed it. As always, please look in the bio of this podcast and always send me a voicemail message. I'd love to know what you think of the podcast or just follow us on Instagram under Open Pantry Consulting. Until next time, stay well. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, another another myth in our category is that um, alternative proteins are going to be bad for farmers. Um, and that, that is, that's just not the case. I mean, our, our alternative proteins are still made from farmed food, 
Yes. It's just, a, mm. just different. It's just not animals. That's all. So, so yes, it may involve a switch to alternative proteins um, may involve some change in the types of um, things that we farm and grow, mm-hmm. um, but we're still going to need farmers growing food. Like that's, that's not going to change. And um, yeah, yeah. You know, we, we, we want to help support farmers through that change. Um, I think the government should, uh, should also help support farmers through, through, changes that are happening in the industry and yeah, climate 100%. change and, and all the other things that are, that are making it difficult for farmers. Mm. So yeah, that's, that's kind of another misconception. And actually probably another misconception is that meat alternatives are, are you know, overly processed foods. Yes. Um, and that's mm. something again, that the meat industry is pushing. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean that, that I, I do, I like, I, I get that to an extent uh, and a big driver for us was using mushrooms as a base ingredient as opposed to textured vegetable protein. You know, mm-hmm. I, I try to eat a really minimally processed whole food based diet myself, mm-hmm. um, but it's a little, it's a little bit hypocritical for the meat industry to, to say that, um, you know, meat is perfect and clean and, uh, and, a, and yeah, a kind of whole food versus, um, versus meat alternatives because, yeah, you know, like, chickens in factory farms, you know, are still fed antibiotics. Um, you don't have to put antibiotics on the ingredient list when you sell chicken because the meat industry's lobbied to say chicken is an ingredient on its own. So yes. when you buy chicken, it just says chicken, but you don't see the, see all of the things that the chicken was fed and, uh, and the conditions that the chicken was raised in. Um, yeah. Cause the, the meat, meat, meat lobby's done a really good job of protecting themselves with all of that. Super interesting when you, um, when you dig underneath the surface a bit, isn't it, Michael? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's been, it's a fascinating space to operate in. Um, mm. Yeah, and I'm, I guess I'm, I've, I've been super passionate about it for for a few years, just being vegetarian myself, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, just really really enjoy this space. So I guess my last question to you, mate, is like you've been operating for nearly six months now, um, probably, and and where do you want to take Fable next? You know, you've made some really good strides in a really hard time. Yeah, so I mean, our mission our mission is to help and help contribute to ending industrial animal agriculture. I mean, we'd we'd like to, and I, and I use the word industrial there. Like, I think I think there's some arguments for from a sustainability perspective that you know we still have some farmed animals. Mm-hmm. From an ethical perspective, um, no, we shouldn't. But from a sustainability perspective, and maybe even a health perspective, a, a little bit of meat is good, mm-hmm. potentially good, but we should not be eating 110 kilograms of meat per person per year in Australia. You know, maybe that figure should be 10 kilos of meat um, per person mm-hmm. per year. And so we want to help drive that, um, that shift. Uh, and so for us to achieve that, um, you know, we want to build a, a large um, food company that, that provides meat alternatives to, that makes it easier for people to reduce their meat consumption um, mm-hmm. rather than trying to force them to, eat tofu or falafel balls or hemp seed patties, you know, just make it easy. Give them a, the exact taste and texture that they want um, at a cheaper price. Just happens to be made from, in our case, mushrooms and plants. So, so yeah, we want to grow more in, in, in food service. We want to work with um, lots of restaurants and, and uh, offer our product through there. We want to, want to sell Fable into retail. We want to do that, you know, initially focusing on Australia, but um, we launched in Singapore right before COVID into some restaurants there. Um, nice. We're in the UK already with Heston. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we'll keep focusing on Australia for the next year or two at least, but, mm-hmm. but we'll start out, start some international expansion now and ramp that up later. Um, so yeah, yeah, the goal is to, you know, we've, got to, we've got to do this at scale if we want to have a, have a big impact. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Best of luck to you. 
Um, Thanks, Sean. Yeah. What's What's the best way that people can find out about Fable and what you guys are all about? Yeah. So yeah, uh, website's a good place to start. Fablefood.co, um, and then uh, Instagram's a place where we're most uh, prevalent on social media. So at Fablefoodco, uh, and then yeah, my email address is Michael at uh, Fablefood.co. Um, if anyone wants to wants to reach out directly. Awesome. Always in the bio of this podcast, so you can connect easy up with Michael. Michael Fox, CEO of Fable Food Co. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Sean. Great to chat to you. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Open Pantry Podcast. I hope you really enjoyed it. As always, please look in the bio of this podcast and always send me a voicemail message. I'd love to know what you think of the podcast or just follow us on Instagram under Open Pantry Consulting. Until next time, stay well.